Well, good evening, everyone. Good to uh, see you all out on this Good Friday. My name is Mike. If you don't know me, I have the tremendous privilege of sharing the Word of God with you this evening. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to turn there. We're going to go to the 23rd chapter. If you're new to Living Water, we have Bibles on the tables throughout the room. Uh, we also put the verses up on the screen for you. Uh, so once you're, you're there and you're ready, if you're willing and able, if you'd stand, please, in honor of hearing from the Lord. <clears throat> Again, Luke chapter uh, 23, we're going to really focus in on verses 39 through 43, but I want to pick it up in verse 32 just so we can get some context here. Word of God says the following, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and that him is Jesus. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of God, let's pray. Oh Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our praise. How glorious is it to sing about that old rugged cross as we remember what took place so many years ago on that old rugged cross. Lord, I, I have a prayer, and my prayer is that you would be front and center here, that those gathered here and those watching at home would have a clear picture of you, that I would just fade into the background. I wouldn't even be seen, or that you'd be seen, that we would have a clear view, and we would see you rightly for all your worth, for all you are and all that you've done. Help us to see that through the preaching of your word. May you bless the preaching of your word this evening, and I ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> Life is 10% what happens to you 
and 90% of how you react to it. Ever heard that before? Heard that phrase? It's a good one. In case you wonder where that came from, it was a man named Charles Swindoll. He is an author. Uh, He is a pastor, preacher, teacher. And I like that phrase because I find it to be very helpful. There's a lot of truth embedded in that. Because the human experience shares many commonalities. We do. We're all human beings here. and, And we all have experienced both pain and pleasure. We've experienced both joy and sadness, laughter and grief, rejoicing, sorrow. We've mourned. We have good times. We have bad times. Sometimes uh, we, we hurt and offend people. Sometimes we're the one who's hurt and offended. We sin against others and others sin against us. This is the human experience. This is life as we know it. And for you to escape any one of those, uh, I think you would need to cease being human. It just comes with the package. So it's not so much what happens to you that is important. It's how you react to what happens to you that is important. So this evening, we're going to look at two men. We're going to compare two men here in our passage who have very similar experiences, similar circumstances. They share a lot in common, these two guys. Same predicament. They're seeing and hearing the same things as they hang up upon a cross. They're alike in many ways. But their respective reactions to the events of this day, are going to differ greatly. And so this true historical record, as recorded for us by the historian-slash-physician Luke, fits perfectly with this sermon series we've titled Fractured. One reality, many reactions. Shout out to Morgan Johnson, who creates those graphics that you see uh, behind me here. But there's a single event that we are looking at today, and it's the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. And you're going to see two very different reactions to that one reality. So who are these two men? What do we know about them? Well, they're nameless. We don't have their names as recorded in Scripture. Luke here in the ESV says they're criminals. If you go to Matthew and Mark, you're going to see a variety of descriptors depending upon your your English translation. They're listed as robbers, as rebels, revolutionaries. And I guess I I would say that the most popular designation for these two men is they're thieves. They're thieves. The two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus. And when we talk about theft, there's degrees of theft. Our law recognizes this. There's there's common crimes, just petty crime, uh, and graduates all the way up to grand larceny. You could be just a common pickpocketer. Uh, You could be somebody who commits white-collar crime, as they call it, uh, and be an embezzler. You could commit burglary, or you could be a violent criminal who, in the course of stealing, you do so uh, armed, called it armed robbery. 
So there's this, there's this whole you know, panorama of, of different types of thievery here. What can we surmise about these two men? Well, I would say the fact that they're crucified gives us some indication as to their level of larceny. I don't think these guys are petty pickpocketers. Okay, I think they are violent criminals that would warrant a crucifixion. They're a threat to society. And again, Scripture leaves them nameless. If you've ever studied them, though, uh, history has, has recorded for us uh, throughout the ages, the history has given them names. It's some, uh, uh, they call them uh, you know, non-canonical works, uh, books of uh, antiquity that are not part of our 66 books of the Bible. They're, they're given the name, these two guys, Dismas and Gestus, if you ever heard that. I'm not going to deal with that tonight, but what I want to do is I want to, in a kind of a functional way, give these guys some names just so that we have some clarity as to who I'm speaking of. So I'm going to call one of them callous and the other one contrite. We have callous and contrite. Verse 39, one of the criminals, we'll call him callous, who were hanged, railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Here we see Callus living up to his name. I think he's aptly named, right? Callus means to be hardened, insensitive, indifferent. But this guy is more than that. He is a sarcastic mocker. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. See, what Callus is doing here, notice how he just he's joining in with the mockery that, that already has existed. It's already coming from the crowd, and he just joins in with it. The crowd is gathered there, and they, amongst other things, with their mockery and ridicule, they question the identity of Jesus. You have the, the rulers. They say, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And then the soldiers join in. If, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So Callus here, he's not even creative with his mockery and ridicule. He's just regurgitating what he's already heard from others. And he says, save yourself and us. And this is rich with irony. What kind of saving do you think he has in mind? Well, he wants to get down from that cross, of course. That's, that's the saving he has in mind. He wants to, to have this physical agony that he's experiencing ceased. He wants that to stop and Jesus to get him off the cross. That's what he has in mind. He's not looking to be rescued from God's wrath because he's violated one of the commandments, thou shalt not steal. That, that, that's not what callous has in mind here. See, and what Callus doesn't understand, though, and this is where the irony comes in, is by Jesus staying on that cross, he is saving people. He wants them to come down and save himself and others. And, and Jesus is like, no, I'm going to stay on this cross because I have a greater salvation in mind than what you are thinking about. He's securing a greater salvation. His, his goal is loftier. 
He's got a higher view, a loftier objective. Callous, he doesn't have the eyes to see this, though. He just, he's just stuck in the moment right there. Get me off this cross. So his perception is twisted. He's not seeing the situation for what it is. His view is too short-sighted and way too low. And I think people today might be guilty of the same. Just having a low view of Christianity, a low view of what Jesus has done, many people think he came to, to save us, to make us happy, just to make our lives better. That's what Callus wants. He wants happiness. He'd be happy if he can come off that cross. But Jesus isn't nearly as concerned with our happiness as he is with our holiness. It's holiness over happiness. See, the message of Christianity isn't believe in Jesus. He'll make your life easier. And you will therefore be happier. Or come to Christ and he will rescue, out of you, rescue you out of all your earthly predicaments. On the contrary, I would like you to notice that Jesus doesn't save either one of these guys from their earthly predicament. They are both going to die on that cross, on the cross that they're on. See, sometimes you repent of your sin, you put your trust in Jesus, and your life doesn't get easier. It actually gets harder. That has been my experience. But there's good news, though. There's good news because whether you realize it or not, there is a beef. There's a beef between man and God, between God and man. And on that cross, the beef was extinguished. It was dealt with. It was taken care of. We are no longer enemies. We once were. We were alienated from God by our wicked works. As Colossians 1 says, And you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because Jesus didn't save himself, he saved us. See, Callus's biggest problem in that moment is not that he's going to die an earthly death via crucifixion. He, he might think that's his biggest problem, but that's not his biggest problem. His biggest problem is in moments, probably more like hours, he is going to die that earthly death and then stand face to face with his creator. He's going to meet his maker. And he's going to have to give an account. That's his greatest predicament. And that's our greatest predicament. Sinners like you and I in the hands of an angry God. But Jesus satisfied that, that wrath that was directed at us, sinners like me, that, that, that wrath aimed at me has been propitiated. There's a word. It's been satisfied on our behalf by him remaining on that, on that cross precisely because he stayed there on that cross. 
He stayed there and he absorbed the full wrath of God for our sin, my sin. Think about it like that. Make it personal. It's your own sin that did that to the sinless son of God. We can go free and not suffer the punishment, eternal punishment, that is, that each and every one of us deserve. That is what we're remembering here this day, this Good Friday. But sadly, though, many, like Callus, just don't have the eyes to see it. The second thing we see here with Callus is you're watching a tragedy take place. Verse 39 is an absolute tragedy. This man has the greatest opportunity of all time, and he throws it away. He's, he is incredibly close to the Savior. I mean, he's, he's right there in his, in his presence, close enough to have a conversation with him, and he threw it away. I think you could make the case that no man has ever gotten so close to salvation and not received it than this man. What a tragedy. He simply needs to turn his head, turn to Jesus, confess his sin, ask to be forgiven. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he mocks. And it made me think about a phrase that you hear a lot. Many people will say, well, you know, I'll come to Jesus. I'll believe in Jesus. I'll repent on my deathbed. I'm going to live it up for now. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on that occasion, my deathbed, and I will ask for forgiveness at that point. Well, this guy didn't. He's on his, his that cross is his deathbed. And, and there are just so many things wrong with that way of thinking. Let me just give you a few in case you're one of those people banking on a deathbed conversion. First, I'm not sure what would make you think you're going to have that opportunity. Many people get out of their regular bed every morning, go about their day fully expecting to return to their bed that evening, but they never make it. They they die unexpectedly. No returning home. We know this is the world we live in. It happens. Reminds me of the the man in the New Testament to whom God said, he said, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Oh, very ominous, very unexpected. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, the more you sin unrepentantly, to just continue to sin Continue to hear about forgiveness, the forgiveness offered in Christ, and you reject that, the more those two things become a reality in your life, the harder and harder your heart will get. You will get more and more calloused. Repentance is not easier, it's harder for the person who continues on in their sin, especially when they hear the way out. They hear the way of escape. They hear of a savior. And Romans chapter 1 says something extremely scary. God gives people over to their sin. He says, you need to repent. And you say, no, I'm not going to. 
You need to repent. No. I want my sin over the Savior. There's a point. I don't know when it is. Scripture doesn't really reveal it. It's up to God's prerogative. But he simply says, okay, I'll let you have it. Go ahead. And it's the worst thing that can happen to somebody. No longer feel conviction. You've been given over to your sin. That is entirely possible. And we need to remember, too, in the New Testament, those two doctrines, repentance and faith, the two sides of the same coin, right? Repentance and faith are, are, are described in the New Testament as gifts of God. He gives them out when he wants to, as freely as he wants to. They come from him. We think we can just muster that up on call. Whenever I want, I'll repent. I'll express saving faith. It's not up to you. God grants it. That's what the teaching of the New Testament is. So it's if today you hear his voice, today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, not on some deathbed, it's today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Let's turn our attention to the, to the other criminal, the one I've given the name contrite. I looked up the definition. I, I think I knew what contrite meant, but I wanted to see what uh, Google had to say on the matter. Dictionary.com said, having remorse or sorrow. And then underneath that, you know how they give you like a little phrase, like here's how it's used? You know what dictionary.com said? A broken and contrite heart. I'm like, look at you, dictionary.com, Psalm 51. Wow, somebody got saved who programs for dictionary.com. Like, man, that's pretty sweet. But here's a question for you. Does, does contrite revile Jesus? Does he mock and ridicule him? You, you might be inclined to say no, but the answer is actually yes. You say, Mike, where is that in the text? Well, we have to look at the other two synoptic gospels. You got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the synoptic gospels. Luke doesn't reference it, but both Matthew and Mark do. Here's what they say. Matthew 27, verse 44. And the robbers, notice the plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Mark chapter 15, those, plural again, who were crucified with him also reviled him. See, I don't want us to fall into the trap that, that one of these guys is bad and the other one's good. No, they're both bad. They, they both did something that warranted a crucifixion. I mean, they, they committed some crime, such as they're on a cross. Then they both revile mock, ridicule Jesus while on that cross. But one of them has a change of heart. One of them. So how does contrite go from reviling Christ to what we read in verses 40 and following? Let me read them to you again. But the other rebuked him. This is uh, contrite rebuking callous, saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
So what happened to this guy? How does he go from reviling Christ to rebuking Callus? Something must have happened. And it did. A miracle occurred. God intervened into the human heart of contrite and brought about contrition. That's why I gave him the name contrite. He brought about repentance, sorrow, grief over his sin. We deserve to be here, he says. That's not what Callus was saying. See, God stepped in and gave him a change of heart. And we know it because we can, we can tell by what comes out of his mouth. We have a demonstration here of what I'm calling a recipe for conversion. You want a, you want a recipe, a formula? Yeah, I mean, Scripture doesn't really put it like this, but you know, sometimes we just kind of need a little you know, synopsis of, of what is it like to come to Christ and be converted. I think we have one here in these short verses. I think there's three parts to it. One, and we'll see this, contrite has an awareness of God namely the fear of God. Number two, he acknowledges and confesses his sin. And number three, this leads him to repentance, asking for forgiveness. So let's take those one at a time. So this awareness that, that he has of God, namely the fear of God. I would ask, what, what marks the unregenerate heart? The, the person who has not come to Christ yet? What, what defines them? What, what are they, what's their heart like? Well, Romans chapter 3 gives us this devastating critique of the human condition apart from saving faith in Christ. When we, when we become redeemed, we become converted to Christ. This is every single one of us in our unconverted state. Here's what it says, Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And here it is, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the unconverted person who has no fear of God. And that's the very thing that Contrite references here. See, until you have a healthy fear of God, I think you will simply see Jesus as an add-on. He's, he's a life enhancer. He's here to make my already good life better. That, that, that's what I think he's all about. If you don't recognize the, the great work that he accomplished on the, on the cross on your behalf, he will just be a helper to you to bring you more comfort, eh, make life a little easier. You'd have joy and happiness. But what people don't realize is that apart from him, we are utterly hopeless. We're completely destitute. Yes, you might have fleeting happiness and, and, you know, with the toys of this world and the fleeting pleasure of the, pleasures of this world, but there will be hell to pay without Christ. 
And this, you know, this is essential, I think, for us to communicate when we share the gospel. And I think where the confusion comes in is when you do come to Christ, he does, in a sense, enhance your life. Like, my life is better. I think it's harder, but I think it's better with Christ. You know, uh, just, just the joy. I mean, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's good stuff, right? And that's what you get. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But the real issue at stake here is what are we saved from? As we throw that word around, saved. Are you saved? Well, I think the question has to be asked when you talk about saved. Saved from what? Saved from loneliness? Saved from purposelessness? Saved from you know, just a, a joyless life? An unfulfilling life? Or saved from the wrath of God because of our rebellion? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what the Bible says. See, a healthy fear of God coupled with a sense of one's own guilt, that is a great one-two combination for us to truly appreciate what we have in Christ. And that's the second ingredient. The second ingredient in the recipe for conversion. You have the first one is an awareness of God. And in this case here, we're talking about the fear of God, because that's what Contrite brought up. But then the second one would be acknowledging and confessing our own sinfulness, which is exactly what Contrite does. He says, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're getting what we deserve. I've sinned. I've broken the law. I'm getting what I deserve. No justification. No, I shouldn't be here. None of that. He says, I'm getting what I deserve. And, and the best way to see this is by way of contrast. Look, look, at, look at what he's saying here with what Callus is, has in mind. You know, Callus, no mention of the fear of God, uh, no fear of judgment, no sense of his own sinfulness, no sense of justice, no sense of guilt, no desire to be forgiven, no longing for righteousness, no seeking reconciliation. The exact opposite of contrite. See, contrite is not looking for someone to rescue him from that cross. That's not what he's looking for. His eyes are on something greater. He knows he's going to die on that cross. No one escapes crucifixion. That's it. You're going to die there. But somehow, some way, he understands there's a coming judgment that is greater, that the consequences are more dire than the current judgment that he's under from breaking civil law that put him up on the cross there's something greater in view that he has in mind a divine judgment is coming that's what he has in mind it's been said that sin never becomes clearer to a sinner than when the sinner is in the presence of righteousness remember isaiah 6 remember that prophet isaiah is in the temple he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the presence of holiness. The seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The very presence of holiness. What does Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord 
of hosts. Isaiah is keenly aware of a sharp contrast. Who's the contrast between? Him and the Lord. And he's like, no comparison. Not comparable in any way. And we need to have that same comparison. What do we do, though? I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that gal. So I must be okay. Right? I've just... I, I, I've, I, my, my morality is superior to theirs. And if you're a really bad person, you can always find a worse person. And if all else fails, you just play the Hitler card. At least I'm not Hitler. Well, congratulations. That's something. Hitler ain't the standard. God's righteous standard of perfection is seen in the righteousness of Christ is the standard. Did you see the comparison that Contrite does? He says, we, who's we? Him and Callus, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, here's the comparison, has done nothing wrong. He, he rightly understands the situation here, and he acknowledges his sin and confesses it. And if anyone truly acknowledges, confesses their sin, it, it will lead to a forsaking of sin. Again, if it's true, if it's genuine. And I think if we, you know, we don't get to see it in, in, in this thief's life, right? He's going to die. So we're not privy to how he would have lived his life should he have escaped this punishment. You know, if he was somehow, a miracle was to survive the cross and go on living, I'll bet you anything, we're going to see a man bearing fruit. We're going to see a man continually repenting. Because that's the testimony of the convert in the New Testament. That's what we would have seen. So the last portion of the recipe, just follow the progression. You're aware of God and his holiness, and he's to be feared. He is to be revered. You have that healthy fear. You couple that with a sincere acknowledgement of your own sin. These two are going to lead you to what? Ask for forgiveness, mercy, grace. That's, that's going to be your, the, the, the thing that you're going to need so desperately. You're going to find a deep burning in your soul for forgiveness. And I think this is what Contrite is, is asking for when he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's asking, will you forgive me? You said, Father, forgive me. See, again, he heard that. Somehow, Callus doesn't pick up on that. Contrite does. Maybe I can be forgiven. Because he also knows that Jesus is going to die on that cross. So what does he mean? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What, what, what sort of knowledge does Contrite have? He must think there's life after death. There's life beyond the cross. Right? How else? Is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why would he say that? He must, by faith, have some sort of understanding that Jesus is going to rise again and bring the kingdom with him. He's speaking with the eyes of faith. Now, let's, let's look at Jesus as we begin to wrap this up. Let's look at Jesus, his response. <clears throat> it's a single statement he makes, what Jesus says to him. Truly, I say to you, today... You will be with me in paradise today. There's no waiting room. There's no someday. <coughs> Excuse me. This, this is today. 
There's no purgatory today. You don't have to go burn off your sins. You're forgiven. You will be with me in paradise. This man has had no baptism. He's not received communion, no confirmation. He's done no good works. He hasn't attended a single Bible study. He has no church membership, zero church attendance. He has not spoken in tongues. He hasn't gone on a missions trip. He hasn't volunteered anywhere. He hasn't given a single dime. He has nothing to offer. Nothing. Except his belief that Jesus is who he said he was. That's it. That's all he's working with here. Yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. This man couldn't even bend the knees, pin to a cross. He can't even fold his hands in prayer. Yet Jesus says, you're mine. I got you. He doesn't tell him, we got to get you baptized, man. Somebody get the hose. Spray, get this guy. Get him wet. I, he, he, he's, he's advocating for sprinkling. Jesus wouldn't do that, though, because he's an immersion guy. So, All the visiting Presbyterians, that was for you. I love you. I love you. He doesn't say to him, yeah, you got to start doing some good works. Come on, contrite, you better start. Clock is ticking, bro. Let's go. How about you witness the old callus over there because that dude's lost, all right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't have him recite any kind of sinner's prayer. No Satan, our fathers, nothing. Today you will be with me in paradise preacher named Alistair Begg, he, he was dealing with this text, and he, he imagined what it might be like for contrite to show up at the gates of heaven. He shows up, angel comes out, so um, what are you doing here? And contrite's like, I'm not really sure. What do you mean you're not sure? Like I said, I'm not really sure. The angel's like befuddled, he doesn't know what to do, he's like, let me go get my supervisor. <laughs> Supervising angel comes out and says, All right, we just, uh, just have a few questions for you, sir. Uh, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Can you articulate that for us? Guy's like, never heard of it in my life. Then on what basis are you here? To which he responds, the man on the middle cross said I can come. Isn't that great? The man on the middle cross said, I can come. What a tremendous example of God's grace, right? This is God's grace on full display to a guilty, undeserving sinner. It's God's grace. And we can, we can say this of ourselves. Amazing grace has saved a wretch like me. Amazing love. How can it be? Right? That my king would die for me. Two men. Two men. Some say these guys represent all of humanity. You got the faithless and the faithful. What did Jesus say? There's no neutrality. You're either with me and you gather, or you're against me and you scatter. You're in one of those camps. Camp callous, camp contrite. Both these guys had similar situations, similar experiences, 
They're they're both up on a cross. They're both guilty. They both heard and saw the events of that first Good Friday. But they differed at one critical juncture. How they viewed the man on the cross in the middle. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for your great sacrifice. Lord, thank you that at just the right time you would come to this earth And that you would live a life completely obedient to the law, living under the law, accomplishing what none of us could ever do. And then wrongly be committed, some kangaroo court trial. And Lord Jesus, you end up on that cross as as the perfect sacrifice, all those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointing forward to you, to you fulfilling that on that cross, bearing upon your own body, taking in yourself, absorbing in your body our own sin. What an amazing story. What an amazing story. And that's not the end, though. Lord, you are alive. You are alive today, and we will celebrate that all this weekend. We will celebrate that tonight, tomorrow, and then on Sunday, and for the rest of our days, because it is the greatest story ever told. And I'm just thankful to be a part of it. I'm just so grateful that you have bought me, redeemed me, and brought me into your kingdom. And I know my friends here are echoing that in their hearts. We just want to give you all the praise and glory and honor, because you are deserving. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.